Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 124. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Massachusetts, and normally on Life to School, I like to sit down with some fellow life science teachers and chat about what's going on in our classrooms, but we're going to continue our summer series of podcasts, and we're going to uh, completely break format, and I am going to interview the authors of a book, After the Mask, A Guide to Caring for Students and Schools. So this is a recently published book uh, that discusses the pediatric mental health crisis that schools were grappling with before 2020, then how they were exacerbated during the COVID-19 pandemic, and uh, the uh, then proposes some strategies that educators will want to implement in their classrooms. So joining us are authors, Dr. Chris Jensen. Welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for having us. And also uh, Jess Sorcher. Welcome, Jess. Thank you so much for having us. And and tw- sister Rachel, Rachel Sorcher. Yes. Hi, we're excited to be here. Yeah, I, I, I realized at the end of the book when I was reading, so um, so as I, I was joking before we started recording that I had given myself an enormous amount of homework prep for this episode uh, by, by reading this, that uh, the book is entirely written through uh, Chris's voice until the very end. Um, and then there's like little like page and a half that's written in the voice. Um, and then at that point, they refer to themselves as, or I think Chris refers to you as Rach and Jess, uh, very diminutively. <laughs> so uh, so I will refer to you as uh, uh, Rachel and Jessica. Uh, but if we slip out of that, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll slip out of that. So that's okay. Great. I would love to do a little background uh, about who you folks are first uh, before we dive into the book. So uh, let's start with you, Chris. Um, you know, y- you have this very interesting background of both having a medical background and an educational background. So, uh, you know, give us a, a sort of one minute. Who are you in the sort of education space and expertise that that comes to writing this book? Sure, I'd be happy to. I would start by saying I've been really lucky in life um, that the universe, God, whatever you believe in, takes care of, you know, kids, animals, and people that are misguided wandering. And I must be the last one. But I, uh, I began my career in emergency medicine, and I did ER and urgent care for quite some time. Um, and that was my initial calling in life and absolutely loved it. Um, worked in Chicago, worked in the Kansas City metro area. And, you know, to be honest, um, had the greatest thing in the world happen, met my wife, who is the brightest doctor in the house, far, far more so than myself. And um, long story short, as we explored our journey through life, we had some crazy schedules and we needed mm-hmm. stability. And so one of us had to make a career change and I volunteered. Um, and, you know, the bottom line is that I had always loved resident and medical student education. And that was one part of my job that I really enjoyed. And so as I looked for what next, I took an opportunity um, with a school district outside Kansas City where they were looking for a medical background to teach a foundations of medicine course for kids that were aspiring to be in healthcare. So I jumped at it. And my thought at the time was, hey, I'll try out this teaching thing and I can build a consulting business and the teaching gig will give me steady money. And I was so misguided and ignorant. I'm like, this will be easy. <laughs> well, it was not easy. It was very hard, but I fell, I fell in love with teaching at the secondary school level, um, more so than I thought I would. And so that led to 10 years of teaching public high school. Um, and it was a great chapter in my life. Um, and as the medical consulting, which was going on in the background grew, I needed some more legitimacy. So I went and did a CDC science education fellowship, which is a one year deal that I very much valued. And it kind of opened my eyes to public health niches within schools, as well as businesses. My passion being schools, I tend to focus on that. Um, And that really got me to today, you know. Yeah, it, it was a good uh, a good time to have a background in public health and schools as we go into a global pandemic. I I imagine that when you talk about being lucky, uh, you know, definitely fortunate to hit at that time. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, clearly, I did not plan that, but um, it was an interesting <laughs> set of circumstances. And uh, funny you mentioned that because when everything went sideways, um, I was asked to come out of the classroom and do some health advising, 
Um, our particular district has outstanding nurses, but they are already swamped. And so mm -hmm. they needed some additional help. So myself and the district nurse coordinator worked with our community health department to try and make schools as safe as possible for students and staff. And that's mostly the work that I did during 2020. Um, and that health advising felt natural coming off the consulting that I'd done, um, despite it being a very unnatural year. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, and then our other two authors um, who, who contributed uh, to this um, both have a public health bent. Um, I guess we'll start with, with you, Jessica. Sort of where are you in your uh, public health journey? Yeah, for sure. So I'm pretty fresh out of school. I graduated in May of 2020 from Miami University in Ohio. Um, I have my bachelor's in public health and then a master's in health promotion. And I will be starting a PhD in community health program in the fall. So as you can tell, public health has been a passion of mine and I wanna do that for the entirety of my career. Um, but I've always had a strong interest in um, mental health and sort of quality of life as topical areas within public health. So the opportunity to work on this book and really dive into student mental health really just aligned perfectly and it was the best experience to work with Chris and Rachel. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And, and Rachel, you too uh, share your uh, sister's uh, public health uh, uh, passion, uh, I would say. Where, where are you in your journey? Yes, absolutely. Well, I kind of copied her and it's hard to follow <laughs> both of them. But um, yes, I also graduated from Miami University in 2020 with a bachelor's in anthropology. And I'm currently pursuing my master's in public health degree from Boston University School of Public Health. And similarly, I've always been interested in the intersection between community health, mental health, and health equity. So helping to write this book um, really afforded me the perfect opportunity to dive into exploring these topics and how they're playing out before COVID, but also during COVID too. Um, and like Jessica said, it's been a highlight of my career getting to work with Chris and Jessica on the book. I just want to interject something really quick, if I may. Yeah, absolutely. Um, these, these brilliant minds, I had the privilege of teaching them when they were in high school. And it became really clear to me that in just a fast moment of time that I should try to see if I could work for them because <laughs> they, were, they were on their trajectory of just being kind, well-rounded, brilliant, ambitious. And so when, when the opportunity presented itself, and I know we'll get into it, to write this book, I did one thing right. And that one thing was I recruited people far more intelligent than me that were, that were very passionate and very driven. And so when they walked into my classroom as students, once again, it's good to be lucky. Yeah, well, that was, I was going to bring that up, that, you know, the, 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 it comes out at the end, as I said, it, I, I'm, spoiling the, I'm spoiling the last six pages of the book, um, but uh, <laughs> that the relationships, you know, started uh, in the classroom. Um, and it does, you know, for me as a teacher, you know, it makes me turn over uh, the relationships that I've had with, you know, um, not to embarrass uh, the two ladies on here, but, you know, the brilliant students that I've had in the past who, you know, who I've had these deep philosophical conversations with or, um, you know, are doing things that are amazing out there in the world having just recently graduated college or shortly thereafter, I, it, de it definitely connected with me at the end as well uh, when I was thinking about that. But, you know, Rachel, you also came to Boston, you know, you're connected to Boston. So that's my East coast uh, bias here. So yes. you've, you've got the win uh, right there. I was so. going to say, Hey, East coast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and as, I love it. If you yeah. have any tips. Oh, I, and I love it. So I, I live in, I was going to say, yeah. I live, no I live north of Worcester. So uh, as far as where Boston is concerned, like I might as well live. Uh, uh, one of my former students had shared a map and says, basically, once you get outside of 128, there's like dragons. Um, but uh, yeah, I love the city. Uh, you know, it's for me, it's a place that I, you know, pre-pandemic would pop into all the time, just, you know, on a on a whim would pop in. Mm -hmm. I have good friends who are still there and um, lots of lots of former students who uh, who go through in the various colleges and universities that are all around the city. So it's, it's a, it's a great place. Um, hub of the universe. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I haven't actually uh, moved there yet, but I will be experiencing that soon. <laughs> so 
It's good. Yeah. You might not want to drive, but other than that, it's a great city. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I'm not planning on it. Not planning on it at all. All right. Well, let, we could, uh, as I had mentioned before, we could spend forever on this. And uh, and I, I do feel almost bad trying to squeeze this book into an hour because, um, you know, I have notes and notes and like sticky notes all over the place with all kinds of things that we have about this 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 book that uh, we could talk about. But um, the book is definitely written in three parts. So I want to make sure we we try to address some of the key parts of parts one, two, and three. And um, as I said, I, I the book is written very much from the, um, you know, old man sarcastic uh, voice, which I very much spoke to me. Um, but uh, I know that a lot of the background research came from uh, both uh, Jessica and Rachel. So please chime in where you feel appropriate um, on these various points. But uh, one of the things that struck me about part one of the book is it describes describes the rise in student mental health before the pandemic. Um, and then in part two, you went into you know the causes that come up as a result, or really the challenges. I, I don't want to even say it's mental health, it's because it's broader than mental health challenges that 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 students and families were hit. But I was struck as wondering, was this book formed as an idea before the pandemic? Because it very much writ, read to me as somebody who's been in a public school for 25 years or you know, most of my life, that this book, the part one of that book could have been a standalone book if the pandemic had never happened. And you could have done part one and part three, and that could have been the book if there was no pandemic. So was the pandemic the impetus or was this a nugget that was starting before the start of this? And I I don't know who wants to tackle this first. Let's see. I'll try and go first and then Rachel and Jessica can clean it up. Um, (laughs) I, I would say that really the pandemic was the driving force to actually get get these words on paper. And why I say that is because, you know, teachers have been aware, parents as well, and healthcare workers, that there's been a youth mental health issue for quite some time. We chose to take our research back to 2000 because we thought two decades was sufficient and it was a nice convenient number, but it's been building since then. Um, and to be frankly honest, as we were dealing with all things COVID and you know, in our teacher contract, other duties as assigned exploded on us, right? (laughs) And we were trying to navigate these uncharted waters. The entire time, I couldn't stop thinking, we're shelving some really important things. And we have to, because we're surviving in advance right now. But what next? You know, at at some point, the virus dissipates. I'm not going to try and predict when. But While this was going on and while we were all trying to just get through the year, kids were still suffering. And my concern was this crisis that we've always been alluding to, is it as bad as people say? Is it really that much of a dumpster fire? Because if it is, then we're going to throw additional gasoline on it with this pandemic. And that's what was going through my head. So to be honest, it was research that I kind of began out of curiosity Um, to really quantify the significance and severity of the mental health crisis before 2020. You know, what's our baseline? How bad are we? And then when it became obvious we had some issues, then the three of us were naturally curious, well, do we actually have evidence to support that COVID made it worse? Or are we just guessing? And to what level can we be confident? Um, And so we chose metrics of mental health that you can quantify and track over time, um, you know, volume of visits to healthcare facilities for mental health needs, trends and trends in anxiety, um, the evolution of depression diagnosis over time, frequency of substance abuse, and then sadly, but importantly, suicidal ideation. And so we looked at those five metrics in part one, freestanding, how they evolved between 2000 and 2019. And then of course we said, where did they move? How did they evolve in 2020? Because we thought the readers would want to know. But yeah, I mean, it was it was fueled by the pandemic, but the curiosity was there for some time. Hmm. Yeah, kind of piggybacking on what Chris said, I think he approached us um, about the book in, I think, December of 2020. So sort of in the midst of everything <laughs> with kind of the general idea. Um, and Rachel and I were 
absolutely thrilled and excited to help him out and start. But um, I definitely think, like you said, it was the impetus for the book. And I think that for us and kind of how we were viewing it, the the pandemic gave us kind of the perfect moment to get people to listen when we say that student mental health is a concern and has been for a very long time. And I think that during COVID, people were more hyper aware or at least more aware than before about the state of their kids' mental health or students' mental health. Um, Like just in regard to COVID, not even the normal challenges um, kids face, people could tell that whether it was like loneliness or isolation or ambiguity for the future, or even fear was affecting mental health along with their own. And at that time, we were like, there's really no time like the present to sort of talk about it and address it. And um, it was almost like we couldn't not address it after such a life altering event that's bound to affect students now and in the future. And, you know, you really couldn't have been prepared for it um, and everything that comes along with it. Yeah. And I, as both uh, you and, and your sister are not uh, that far out of high school, I'm sure the the yeah. language of anxiety, uh, which is a, a, especially if you're in a very academic school or an academic track as you have gone on uh, to further your education, uh, the level of anxiety that that is sort of a baseline um, that borderlines the healthy versus the unhealthy anxiety that is sort of the stress is not always bad. There's this tension mm-hmm. and stress that's good, yeah. but the the tone and tenor of that anxiety, particularly in very driven students, is often right on that edge. And so I'm sure that you probably related a lot to your own personal experience over the last you know, decade of academics. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons why our team works so well together is because we had the teacher perspective from Chris, but then we also being students ourselves currently could really relate to the content and the material. And it was helpful to be able to have those perspectives, but then also be able to take ourselves out of the picture and look at it more from a straight education perspective and then public health as the data, the academics behind it. So yeah, it was great to combine the personal and then also the non-personal. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have an inelegant um, analogy that sort of ran as I was thinking about the mental health component in a lot of ways. It was um, as somebody who does a lot with digital work, um, the, resistance to accepting the fact that we live in a digital world is something that you very much run up against as a teacher, Um, that you have teachers who uh, teach like I I often am saying, we are really good at preparing our students for 1996 um, because that's when a lot of my colleagues (laughs) graduated from, you know, college. And that's that's the technology world that they live in. And they don't they, they, they just don't modernize their tools. And obviously that's not true of everyone, just like mental health. But suddenly there was an impetus. The problem existed. There was a lack of digital literacy, both by teachers and by students or academic digital literacy by both teachers and students before the pandemic. But then all of a sudden, everybody had to figure out at the drop of a hat how to become somebody who could communicate using digital tools, how to interact in digital ways. And for some people, that was a huge shock. For others, it was mild. In many ways, the the undercurrent of not addressing the digital needs caught up to us in a big way. And not that it is exactly a parallel, but in a lot of ways, this mental health issue, as I said, has been a, a, an undercurrent that if you're fortunate in a school, you haven't had crisis. But I know myself at my school and at other schools, there have been mental health crises. There have been terrible, um, there have been terrible moments where as a school, you have to come to grips with the, the amount of mental struggle, and then you dropped a pandemic on top of it. So it was a very... Um, you know, uh, <laughs> denial denial only works until you hit rock bottom. It's almost like exactly. that, that this pandemic hit us rock bottom. So yeah, I, I think you explained that really well, and I have similar feelings. Um, and one of the things you know that that I think Jessica and Rachel were alluding to is as we collected this data and we tried to demonstrate in the parts pre pandemic and during 2020 how it evolved and escalated. It really, for the three of us at least became almost the moral imperative that what we do in a classroom 40 hours a week has to, and I say the word has on purpose, has to be reprioritized. You know, 
we get distracted so easily in education by a billion initiatives and curriculum pendulum swings and 4,000 other daily events. And I think as teachers, we especially felt during 2020, we had to do everything, do everything for our kids. And that less, a lot of staff fried and burnt out. <laughs> and, you know, one of the considerations we had was, and I imagine we'll get to part three later, how do we inspire teachers to engage um, in helping these kids when they're already fried, when they're already burnt out, when they're already exhausted, and when they're already spread so thin? And before we get to those recommended implementations, the first thing we had to do was create buy-in. We had to demonstrate that the downslide in mental health was real, was valid, and was tragic. And that's what part one and part two really aim to demonstrate that. And it's not meant to criticize schools. Rather, it's meant to create some relief for staff so they can feel justified when they reprioritize their classroom and when they start doing you know, lessons that are intermingled with SEL that are not awkwardly one-offs, but naturally fit into their content and are done by them instead of a guest speaker in a gym or a YouTube video, or you get the idea. And we wanted teachers to feel empowered and validated for making those changes, hence the truckload of data we put in our bed. <laughs> Yeah, lots lots of references, uh, particularly early on. Uh, very uh, the, one of the chapters I was got to the end and it was like six pages <laughs> of references <laughs> that I was getting through. And I was and I, I really I did. I mean, as a science background person, I appreciate the 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 thorough research that went into that. Um, sort of about this, one of the things that I I was thinking about, um, and I, I will say this is you know. Uh, a sign, hopefully, of a of a good book um, is that I had a frame shift as I was reading through that the early parts of the book. Um, I've worked with students in um, programs where students had a lot of trauma, and so one of the things we often use in the language of that is um, uh, ACEs or adverse uh, childhood experiences as a way of framing the amount of trauma a student has in encountered during their life before they come to me. And so during the pandemic, I was thinking like, has the, is the pandemic an ACE? That's sort of a mentality that I had, I hadn't formalized it, but I had sort of come to that idea in my head that this is a traumatic event. I had learned about traumatic events in the past. And so like, that was sort of my frame, but you very much in this book looked at mental health from a risk factors versus a protective factors, um, framework and then really focused heavily on student self-efficacy and self-esteem rather than looking at the pandemic as a trauma, like an event that happened, but really looking at those risk versus protective factors. So I, I'm curious, uh, you know, what led to the focus of self, on, of particularly on self-efficacy and self-esteem? Um, was that something that bloomed out of the research from personal experience how did you get to that point in uh, the framing? Because it is something that you pick up in the beginning and it does roll right through to your recommendations. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we knew going into the book at the very beginning that we were going to write within the framework of the social determinants of health. And that's something that as public health people, we're constantly working in that state of mind, um, kind of with the idea that health lies at the intersection of all the different things in our life. So education, our environment, where we live, what we eat, what we do for work. Um, and so I think the protective and risk factors came out of that framework. But also, we chose to discuss mental health in terms of those factors, because doing so is a really great way to conceptualize all of the things that could impact mental health. So with the risk factors being things like family conflict, stressful events, aka the pandemic, uh, social isolation, those are all things with associated higher likelihood of negative outcomes. And then you have the protective factors that are really the opposite of risk factors and can help to reduce the risk factors impact. So things like good coping skills, healthy relationships and that thing. Yeah. And along those same lines, I think that we at the beginning kind of talked about mental health in terms of sort of like a seesaw. So with those risk and protective factors, we said like, for example, for a specific student, if their risk factors currently outweigh their protective factors, then that seesaw is kind of tilting towards a poor mental health state. And that imbalance is obviously not what we want. So 
we got kind of were looking at it as really building up protective factors of which two of the most important that we found were self-esteem and self-efficacy. Um, but it's important to note that those can also be risk factors with the other way with poor self-esteem or poor self-efficacy. And those are really significant risk factors. So we thought if we can kind of hone in on two of the most important protective factors and have teachers really focus on enhancing student self-esteem and self-efficacy, then, um, and that's, yeah, that's what we yeah. sort of targeted. Yeah. And then I guess to contextualize this, I don't know if this is a tangent or not, but um, we know that student mental health or improving student mental health is going to require a community approach. Schools aren't the only entity who need to focus their efforts on improving it, but we should be thinking about the advantages of capitalizing on where students spend eight plus hours of the day every single week. Um, so if you think of the makeup of a school, you have the administration and then you have the mental health staff that includes overwork counselors, maybe one school psychologist and a social worker, but not to mention that some schools may not even have this full staff. And we know that this team has too many tasks on their plate in the first place to be able to always be focused on preventative mental health efforts. So then who you're left with is teachers and they make up most of the building, <laughs> but there's no way. And as Chris talked about this before, we can possibly give teachers something else to do in their classrooms when they're overworked and underpaid. Um, so this book had to provide a framework that's realistic and something they want to implement in their classrooms. Yeah. 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 I, and I, I don't know, Chris, as somebody who works in a, in a school, I, the other thing that sort of popped out at me was the, the idea of ACEs, because I know that you nodded, a, nodded along, because I'm sure you've been through some of those workshops <laughs> about trauma yep. um, in there. Um, there's, there's also like, it's very determinant. Like these things happened. Oh, well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I, I love the, the language of the seesaw uh, that, that, that you brought up here because of the idea that, wait, no, there's actually something we could do about this. It's not just a uh, like, there's not a bucket of trauma that we're filling and there's right. nothing that we can do about yeah. traumas that have in the past that, the, that mental health is dynamic and things happen in yeah. both both sides of those. So um, I, it, to me, again, it, it was a shifting on some of the, you know, as you mentioned, the workshops that we sat through and the professional development you get, not to criticize the past professional development on trauma in the past, but it made me aware of some of the deficits and as not somebody who has a mental health background, um, that was the way I had been trained to view student mental health, particularly for those who are most vulnerable. Um, so I don't know if that, Th that played a role at all in, in your thinking, or if it was just relying on your brilliant co-authors to help you frame that. Um. <laughs> uh, it was mostly my brilliant co-authors. You nailed that up. <laughs> but, um, you know, there was, a, there was, I did get two neurons to fire at the same time. So um, I will tell you that, you know, by nature, teachers are go-getters and they are problem solvers. They're not just teaching problem solving to their kids. They're doing it live. And so, we kind of almost reverse engineered this. We looked at what can teachers actually do to improve the situation when we get to the implementations? Well, we have to pick something that naturally falls within their licensure. And we're not looking to cross-train teachers. We're not looking to add to their responsibilities. How do we just play to their strengths? And that became very apparent to us. And then Jessica and Rachel did an extremely admirable job sifting through um, and finding the evidence for how when we influence self-efficacy and self-esteem, you can move a kid, if those are in negative situations, to a positive situation and liken it to sports, it's like a pick six and running it back for your own touchdown. You know, mm -hmm. you, you got rid of a threatening situation and you made it a positive. And so knowing that teachers could build on that and work and strive to tilt the seesaw in a favorable direction, we thought that was the backbone of our strategy. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to hit one more part of, of part of part two before we get to part three. And I actually am looking down at my little sticky notes that I made. Um, and I joked <laughs> with my wife, uh, I think I was on page 80 that I wrote just as a side note, boy, they're teasing the hell out of part three. Um, uh, and, uh, <laughs> you, <laughs> I, I was, it was around page 80. I was like, I was like, you must've brought up 
we'll get to this in part three. We'll get to this in part three. So you were like, you talked yeah. about reverse engineering. And I was like, oh, you can tell you reverse engineer it when you're reading it because you kept uh, <laughs> my, my note yeah. was literally, yeah, tease the hell out of part three. Uh, but uh, before we get there, I do want to talk about something that's in part two uh, because it, it really um, it really spoke to me. Um, you had this uh, you had this idea about the fact that we we these challenges happened before the pandemic and how we go about defining success in school are basically a bunch of fairly easy, um, simple numbers, uh, that we use Mm -hmm. things like standardized tests and they have this outsized impact on how successful we view a student or a school. And, um, you had a survey you had some survey results that were, um, in the book where you talked about how pretty much everybody teachers, students, parents, administrators, everybody had either like 82 or 83% of the people wanted to use other things other than grades, other than standardized tests to to report back student success. Um, and it made me on a total tangent, think about the idea of like a happiness index or like that we need to find some way to measure joy in a school. Now, I don't know how you go about doing that, but um, did you come up for ways in your research? And I know it wasn't the primary focus of it, but you were very critical of the way we currently measure things. But did you come across any of your research or things, ways that we could measure happiness or joy to at least augment the view of student success and school success? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And so to give a little background, you, you laid that out really well. Um, one of the frustrations we had is that it seems like the way we rank both schools, districts, and individual students is finite moments in time. ACT score, SAT average, state assessment capabilities, graduation rates, um, how, many, how many scholarship dollars did your district pull down? And these are things we can print in a magazine and U.S. News World Report can quote them or any other entity. And hey, now we've got some great schools in America. And I think, you know, as as educators in the classroom, we realize student success or even the success of a school in its entirety should not be wrapped around these finite moments in time that are assessment based, um, you know, and in terms of limited academic performance. And so one of the casualties of that, albeit convenient and quick to do and allow quantitative comparison one of the casualties of that is there are a lot of great moments that are occurring in a student's life or a school's life that don't get recognized. And let me give you an innocent example. Um, there's nothing wrong with celebrating the kids who are national merit finalists or scored extremely well in the ACT. There's nothing wrong with that. It's got the best intentions. But when you have that great little breakfast in the morning and the other kids are walking into school, how do they feel? You know, and and they're coming by and they're 15, 16, 17 year old kids. And what they end up coming across to you in in the classroom is, well, I guess I'm not very smart. Um, And that's one example. Or you have the assembly for a team winning state. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't have an issue with it. But what I'm trying to get at is what we are focusing on and the way we rank schools and the way we rank championships involves a tiny, tiny fraction of the school. And it looks at a small amount of kids. And so I think really shifting how we do things and trying to gauge student performance over time, how students feel about their capabilities, how they rate their self-esteem, self-esteem, excuse me. Um, do they feel capable at graduation? How do we know that? Those are markers of student success that I'm interested in. I know every year that some kids are going to destroy the ACT. And I know every year that someone's going to win the state title. I don't need an assembly for that. What I want to know in my school is how are kids developing into adults and are they actually ready for the real world? You mentioned a happiness index. That's a great idea. I wish we'd written about it. We didn't. (laughs) But to my point, what the book is really trying to get at is let's, you know, I know we have enough of an inertia train that those metrics of success aren't going to go away. But could we add others? You know, could we start internally looking at kids and how they develop? And 
not to tease the hell out of part three, but <laughs> assessments of self-esteem, efficacy, and life skills, man, that's something I believe in. Yeah. And I, I mean, the the concept of comparison as the thief of joy as sort of like a mantra that I often see, like if you you look at students like they they're they're oftentimes um, trained to not look at their own performance and look at their own performance with respect to themselves. But their performance yeah. is always yeah. to be compared with those around them. And, um, you know, I had this moment, um, the other day when I was, uh, I was swimming, um, in the morning cause I have an Achilles tendonitis and it brought me into the pool and, um, I was trying to do just like a very meditative focus on what I was doing. I had a goal, I was working on it and the guy next to me in the lane next to me started swimming faster than me. And I am a 47 year old man. I should not start competing with the random stranger who's in the lane next to me. But all of a sudden, like my, my stroke is off and stuff like that. It's we're we're competitive by nature, human beings. It doesn't take much to draw competitiveness out of us. And I don't know that competitiveness is a bad thing. But if the entire school is geared towards a student viewing that their only value is through the value of comparison with somebody else, then that is going to take away their joy from the experiences that they have. I mean, that, that, absolutely. Yeah. It, and to go on a little bit of a tangent, I apologize, but yeah. taking your point, which is so well said, look at the destruction of social media. You post a picture and 300 people like it. Great. But do you know what kids say? It only got 300 likes <laughs> and this person got 700. I must not be popular. I mean, the flawed logic in that is saddening, but I understand how it happens. And, you know, going back to your sports analogy, I, I'm a very, very stress the word amateur triathlete, but I didn't start doing well or enjoying triathlons until I really had the framework of it's me versus me. It's me versus my watch. And when I finally got to that point, now I love triathlons. Getting a 15, 16, 17 year old kid to understand that concept man, that takes some work. And that's something that has to be taught. And I choose the word taught on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And and I do think there is a, absolutely a maturity piece that comes with those things. There is a point where you have to learn in your life how to find joy in the activities that you do. But the question is, why is it that we couldn't start that process earlier in life for people, that they can find the joy in the activities that they're doing celebrate their individual successes. And it doesn't need to be in comparison to anybody else. It's just the thing that they're doing. Um, and, and our schools are very much set up to block that out. Um, yep. like <laughs> the school, the schools are almost like designed that students are, that's like a secret that we're not supposed to tell the kids. Don't look internally and judge yourself yeah. based off your own feelings. It's all external. And that's very much how well, high school feels. I mean, yeah. And I, I feel like, I love what you're saying. And just to toss out a little bit of a controversial statement, can you imagine what would you do as a parent if you saw the perfectly ranked school, high ACT, high involvement in extracurriculars, great graduation rate, lots of scholarship money, but students rate their self-esteem miserably. I wouldn't send my kid there. You know, and, and you know what? That would actually be the most important metric I'd look at. Because I can find plenty of schools that educate kids well, but I want one that make kids feel well. Yeah, absolutely. And going off of that, I think a huge focus throughout the entire book was thinking about success as not just college, but that students in the school are going to go be engineers and architects and plumbers and electricians and everything and anything else. And kind of thinking about, well, how, how do we, you know, to tease chapter or part three again, you know, how do we implement strategies in the classroom that make every student feel that they can be successful in whatever it is they choose to do, not just going to college or not just even being accepted into, you know, the college of their dreams. Yeah. I mean, I, I distinctly remember on a personal note, there is a young man that I'm so extremely proud of that came to me because uh, at the district I teach in, we're mostly college bound. And he came to me because he had some talent and had shadowed an electrician 
and wanted to go work and do HVAC stuff and electrician. And he was worried that he was making a bad choice in his life. And I was like, wait, explain this to me one more time. You're good at it. You love it. You can make an honest living. How is that a bad choice? Well, everyone else is doing it. Stop. Is it the right thing for you? Yes. Are you proud of it? Yes. This discussion's done. Go tell me what it's like to be an electrician in three years. You know, and I think kids need that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I am hopeful that, you know, as we, as we will, we're going to transition to part three here in a second. I am hopeful that one of the things that came out of, of going into the pandemic was a realization by a lot of folks of, oh, I have to find ways that I, I can fill my time and it's something that I enjoy. And it may not be it's just me by myself or me in a room or me at this time. And it was the first time that a lot of people had to force to slow down and live just in themselves and within themselves. And, um, and people handled that very differently. And it was, as you, as you pointed out in your book, a point where it was not a place where a lot of people were in a mentally healthy place to do that. But for those who were in a place where they had enough balance, I think some people found some things where they, they reprioritized and rethought about happiness and joy. And I know I definitely had conversations with students. Um, some of my very, high-end college-bound AP students this past year about improvement and process and what they wanted to get better on and, and their own selves um, that were refreshing compared to what would have happened in a normal driven school year where we were plowing through. Um, so there, there hopefully is some positives that came out of that. All right, let's move on to part three. Um, and I do want to drop um, the the quote that I think you know. I often uh, one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite books. This is going to talk about total side tangents. Uh, one of my favorite books is uh, Fight Club, um, and I often want to have painted above my board in the front of the room um, that the the uh, the objects you own. Uh, will own you uh, from Tyler Durden up above my board, uh, sort of an anti-materialism screed or several other <laughs> quotes from that book. But I think I, I've changed that. Now what I want to put up there is you are not here to survive this. You're here to take charge of it. And I think that that might be, if I ever have a quote painted above my board, that that quote that comes in part three, um, man, if there was ever a point that talks about being there and taking charge and ownership of your own learning from a student perspective, from a teacher perspective, for whoever is in that room that's reading that, um, that's something you start off in part three, um, which I found personally, by the way, as a really hard section. I, I was very challenged by part three. I had a lot of emotions by part three. Um, I was very inspired at times. I was also like, like how this is so much. How could I do this? Uh, <laughs> very down there. But part three lays out a process for schools to follow to help improve the mental health of all members of the school community. And you call this the SEAL Ambassador Program because you needed an acronym, um, because, <laughs> because why not? Uh, I thought you did a very <laughs> elegant job of bringing that in, <laughs> but you had to have one because you. You, it is a school. <laughs> um, but uh, what is the SEAL Ambassador Program and how do you see this program actually being adopted by a school district? Sure. Um, well, the SEAL Ambassador Program, interesting little segue. Um, I was a military kid. My dad was a Marine fighter pilot. We moved around the country quite a bit. My mom was a preschool teacher, by the way. How they made 52 years of marriage work and are still going is beside me. But anyway, <laughs> I, when I was writing this book with Jessica and Rachel, we talked about one of the things that I've been saddened by. I, I'm pro-SEL. I, I think social emotional learning is great. I think the castle standards are amazing. I'm not going to criticize them at all. I think there's a lot of benefit. In fact, I think things might be worse if we hadn't enacted and pushed SEL a lot in the last two decades. But I'm also a numbers nerd. And this downturn, this, this spiral out of control on mental health that's been going on for the last 20 some years has been going on while SEL has been in effect. And so what I was thinking of was literally, how do we do something with self-efficacy and self-esteem and convince teachers, no, this is not traditional SEL. And what grew out of that was the SEAL mnemonic, but the first thing that popped in my head was the word resilience. And because I'm a military kid, I cannot think of anyone potentially more resilient than a US Navy SEAL. And I mean, the training they go through 
is insane. What they maneuver through is remarkable. And so I'd always been fascinated by them. And so we created this acronym for Social Emotional Academic Leader. And what we wanted was true leaders. And so we thought teachers obviously would be the leaders in this process, but we also knew that they would need courage and resilience to say, hey, I've got enough data about mental health and I can do this. It's in my wheelhouse. It's in my licensure. I can start leveraging my academic content on a weekly and then bi-weekly and then daily basis where I naturally, subtly, nonchalant infuse social, excuse me, mental health determinants of self-esteem, self-efficacy, and life skills. Traditionally, SEL can sometimes be all over the place. It's the drug and alcohol lecture in the gym. It's the put down Macbeth and let's talk about teen pregnancy. It's, you know, everywhere. And although that's got its role, if kids are suffering this badly from mental health and we're convinced they are, then we need to daily prioritize. And the kids need to know we're prioritizing, that it's no longer a one-off, that it's no longer awkward, that it's literally a part of my instruction. And the more comfortable I get with it as a teacher, the more I'm gonna do it. So teachers learn well with examples. Let me give you one. So I'm required by the state of Kansas, as I'm sure every state is, for anatomy and physiology to talk about the lung. Seems like a good idea, it's a pretty important organ. And so <clears throat> I talk about the lung to my kids, and then I pop in one day and say, hey guys, taped around the room or seven chest x-rays. I am acutely aware that you're not a radiologist. Sorry about that. But I'd like you to go figure out, given your knowledge of the human lung and this example of a normal x-ray, there are many things wrong in each one of these x-rays. I need you to find one. I don't care how you do it. I don't care if you work alone. I don't care if you work in teams. I don't care if you use Google. I don't care if you talk to each other, but you got 20 minutes, go. You know what happens? The kids go initially one at a time and no one talks and they're nervous. You know why? Because they're intimidated because they know they don't know how to read a chest x-ray. I know they don't know how to read a chest x-ray and their class rates know that as well. And then after a while, some of them get together and then they group together, but they do this of their own volition. And they come back and I sit them down and say, hey guys, we're gonna talk about some science in a second, but how unfair was that? Dr. Jensen, that was so mean. I didn't know what to do, da 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 da. Yeah, hey, why'd you guys all go by yourself? You initially went by yourself, why? You're a talkative class, you love to hang out. Finally, some brave soul will admit, well, I didn't know this stuff and I didn't want to be embarrassed. Okay, when did you feel better about this activity? Well, I finally teamed up with so-and-so and we kind of bounced ideas off each other. Uh-huh, how'd that go? A little bit better. Hey, what about you two groups over there that cross-checked each other's works? Why'd you decide to do that? Well, we thought maybe it'd give us some more confidence in our answers. Okay, hey guys, when you go out into the real world and you hit situations that are beyond your training, no matter what your job is, you're gonna feel intimidated, right? How do you wanna handle it knowing what you just did? Well, I'd probably reach out to other people early. Love that idea, hope you do. And do you feel a little more comfortable that no one got upset that you didn't know? And when you bounced ideas off each other, it was favorable? And you get where I'm going, Aaron. This is a lesson in self-efficacy and life skills. And when we're finally done, I'm going to take those kids back to the x-rays and I'm going to ask them questions, some of which I know them know and some of which they may not know, but they're going to get some of them right. And I'm going to say, so you did know a lot and you are smart. And just because you were uncomfortable, don't be scared. And did I cover the Kansas state standards that day? Yeah, I did. Did I have a fun time? Yeah, I did. And did my teachers learn something a hell or my students learn something a heck of a lot more important than the lung? I hope so. And so what the SEAL ambassador does is it walks people through a scaffold that's a detailed scaffold, but it is not prescriptive. I'm in no position to tell you how to teach. I don't know your school setting. I don't know your kids, but I'll give you enough of a scaffold that you can look at the process and say, I'll take this, I'll take this, I'll take this, I'll change this, and I don't like that. But the point is, you're gonna start infusing SEL on a daily basis as a leader, and you're gonna help their social, emotional, while at the still time doing academics, and you're teaching them how to lead. That makes you a SEAL.
Oh. And and as I said, the way that you the way I felt during the chapter was at times very much that conversation that you just had that you are a teacher. These are things you're going to do in your classroom, that piece. But there is a larger piece about getting a group of teachers, getting a community of educators, getting a school to move together. And at times during the during the reading, that was the point at which I was. Um, I, I would say the the people who were in my building who were more overwhelmed than the teachers and the students were my administrators. Um, mm-hmm. And there's part of me that's like, great, I have a brand new principal this year and I've got you know four other leaders in my building. I should go drop this book off for them <laughs> and, and give them this book to start the year. Um, and then I don't want to be in the faculty room when people are like, what's this new SEL thing or SEAL thing that we've like, there is a, a practicality buildup. And I, I love the groundswell and teacher up movement, but there definitely is a component that there needs to be a school buy-in component. So I guess my question is like, how do you go from those little sparks that might be this teacher and that teacher there to get larger groups to 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 see this yeah. as a movement that comes in there and and maybe this is an unfair question <laughs> but but I'm wondering because I I'm sure you have a greater vision than I than I do as the people who put this together. No, I I think it's a very fair question and totally appropriate. I I would tell you that Rachel, Jessica, and I, for multiple reasons and through our different perspectives, look, the mental health crisis has been there and we feel a sense of urgency to solve it. But if we're going to do it right, it needs to be teacher led. It needs to be teacher driven. And I think it should actually roll out slow. Ironically, some of the districts that have contacted me, hey, can you provide SEAL ambassador training in person or if they're geographically far, you know, through Zoom? Sure. But the first thing I tell them is give me five dedicated staff that can knock anything out of the park. Well, we want to go school wide. No, please don't. Because then you're making it a top down initiative and you're not letting teachers explore it and you're not letting teachers sell it. And I don't know how it works in your building, but I'm willing to guess when another teacher that I respect comes down the hall and says, Chris, I tried X and the kids loved it. I'm at least interested. And when I hear that they've been doing that for months and they have measurable results and they used valid assessments and you're saying, what? You had an 18% increase in self-efficacy in your kids. What did you do? Teachers selling it to other teachers rolling it out slow, I think personally is the way it needs to go. And that's how we designed it. Now I can't control what schools do with it, but that's what <laughs> I've looked at. And initially in our training thus far, ironically, the reason, well, one of the reasons my voice is so hoarse right now <laughs> is I just did a six hour training this morning and local where I live. And it was a blast because the teachers quickly realized this was their baby. And the second thing they realized, not only the ownership was I can't ask you to ditch the state standards in your district curriculum, but I can ask you to play to your strengths. And you know when you have to go deep with the topic and you know when you don't. And you can look at your units and your lessons and you know how you can weave in ethics, efficacy, um, how to deal with failure, all these things. You know when they can go. You've got a lab that always is tough for your chem students. That's the time to talk about how to deal with setbacks. You know, you can do it and you're in charge of it. And the beauty of part one and two, although they're somber with the data, is I think we've handed teachers enough data to say, we want you to do less. And we want you to teach a smidge less so you can work in seven minutes of this and on a block day, 20 minutes of efficacy. And we actually want you to take stuff off your plate because the mental health hemorrhage is so significant, don't feel guilty about pushing aside some of the red tape of education and feel justified to work in some SEL that fits with your actual lesson because you doing it is going to always outperform me in a gym or an outside speaker. Yeah. And I, I feel, as I said, I've, I've done a poor job giving justice to this, this section because it, you do bring in um, a lot of things that, you know, it sounds on a grand scale, 
like, oh, all of these initiatives. But the fact is, it's not. It it It's a list of things that are skills that when I read through, so for example, there there's um, early on in the, in part three, you listed a group of skills that people, business leaders wanted students to have. And it th- it's things like complex problem solving, critical thinking analysis, creativity, innovation, ideation, originality, initiative. Like it's all like, these are all things I want already. It's not, you're not asking pe- me to like learn how to roller skate backwards because I'm not going to be able to do that. But it, it's all these things I already want to put in. And it's a question of how can you build a small community of support within your school to forge ahead if this is something that's in your wheelhouse, that this is some place in the space that you you want to fill. And if m- teachers are much like me, I had to cut last year. Like I, I already cut. And what I've been telling people is right. now we get to go back and fill in. So the question is, what are we going to fill in as we go back? And I certainly don't anticipate just 2019, September, unit activities, go. This is exactly <laughs> what we're doing again. Like that's We're not going to do that. Um, uh, and I'm also probably the worst teacher to be the ambassador for this in my school because I am the weird one who's doing all of the weird things that nobody else is doing anyway as the person who has the book on, you know, grade list teaching next to me. And, and I've got this book that I'm reading and like, you know, all, like, but there are weird teachers like this in my building and I could probably find three or four other weird teachers like me. And I hate to summarize your book down. You said it much nicer than me. The go-getters, the ones who can get them done. I'll tell you, those are the ones that are also the people who are on top of all of their other things want to tackle this kind of thing. We're also a little odd. Um, but I, I do, I can see that space. I also like your time frame. Um, and, and it's ironic that we're recording this right after the, uh, the book's called After the Mask and uh, <laughs> mask advisories were, uh, you know, brought back. And I, I was one of those people who were telling yeah. people months ago, yeah, they're coming back. Um, in fact, I yeah. think, uh, I think yeah. about two weeks ago, I told some people, they asked me oh, what I thought of the Delta variant. Um, I'm now an hour into my podcast, so I can now start sp- speaking my mind. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, they said, uh, what's, you know, what's, how dangerous is this Delta variant? And I said, nowhere near as, va- as dangerous as all the unvaccinated people. Um, and I said, it's not the Delta variant that's going to put us back in masks and lockdown. It's the unvaccinated. Um, but here, here we are. I mean, this is this is what we're going to go through. And so we're going to go through another uncertain year. And I think I can see us in a place where then in the next year, we're going to have the opportunity to roll out what you've laid out in this book. I think that the ship has sailed on 2021, 2022. Like the, to me, if you're not already in a play, like I, this is not something I can get off the ground, but it is something that as we re we go back to a slightly more normal year, the mental health crises are not going to go away. Yep. The uncertainty is not going to go away. The how to forge forward is still going to be a need. And this gives a roadmap to how could a small community of teachers within the school start to approach that and possibly replace those inauthentic SEL drop-ins that we're asked to do all the time that don't feel very authentic, that get poor buy-in. And this could get more accurate buy-in from people who who feel ready to try this and and that's really the goal and you know when jessica and rachel and i were trying to think of title ideas really what always persisted in our discussions is these problems that we identified in the book are going to be here long after covid Mm -hmm. long after and my fear is they will continue to get worse until we create a cultural change within our schools and again Mm -hmm. you know we have never thought that schools are the problem but Rachel said it so beautifully. We've got kids 40 hours a week. We've got them. I mean, it's not just preparing them for life. Like my happiest times in teaching are watching a kid turn a corner and better their life. And I can't think of something more important than making them feel stable and safe and ready to navigate the world. If I fail them because I taught them 90% of the science that I could have, but I now started addressing self-esteem, self-efficacy, and normalizing their feelings, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with being a 90% science teacher. And, you know, when I look at Rachel and Jess, and perhaps this isn't fair, but the students that I've still been in contact with over the years, I don't think they could pass a test that I gave them in high school anymore 
on the content. We could not. Absolutely not. But for good or bad, they can always tell me how I made them feel, Mm -hmm. you know, and for good or bad, it was those, this conversation in the hallway that I wished I remembered that they do. You said this, Mr. Jensen, and I thank you for it. Or you let me cry in your room. Or it's all these authentic things that we do as teachers, but we're spread so thin. And what After the Mask does is here's the data, here's the scaffold, feel justified, go do it, teachers, go do it. Mm. Put your own specific spin on it, take what you like, modify what you don't. But here is a algorithmic process that's evidence-based that is suggested to yield results. Why? Because there's mountains of data when we impact positive protective factors, kids get better. Yeah. And I would argue that the, the way you're talking about curriculum is, is still from a, like that you have a box of content to present when I think we need to think about it a little differently. Mm-hmm. I think of it, I think I, one of my notes, by the way, you're getting a little insight into how I take notes during reading. Cause I wrote, um, it's like a, a chopped box. I actually wrote curriculum like a chopped box uh, that and in that chopped box that they have are protective factors for students, life skills and content. And if you view curriculum as coverage of content only, you are not viewing curriculum correctly and you can mix and match content with skills, with perfect protective factors. And if you're doing it right, the fact that there was a little less content than there was a few years ago, by the way, I'm a biology teacher. Most of the content I'm teaching now is tentative and probably won't be true in 20 years anyway. That's fine. Um, That's just the nature of how science works. But this life skills and the the building of the protective factors, those are going to be much longer. And that's what the students, those are the skills we need to have the kids uh, beyond when they're in our room. We talked a lot about when we were talking about the SEAL ambassador program at the first um, kind of meeting we had that it's not exactly like reinventing the wheel, but just like reframing how you go about teaching content and really leveraging that course content to teach life skills and build self-esteem and self-efficacy and things like that. Yeah. And to Jess's point, you know, teachers build these relationships that are so empowering and so impactful. Why are we doing these one-off SELs when the person (laughs) in the classroom who that kid adores is the person to give that talk. And mm-hmm. instead of making it say, well, now let's shift to teen suicide. No, I'm going to talk about things that are going to make a kid stronger and better and promote them and build them up while it relates to my lessons. And it's natural. And I know them and I know the ver- the vibe of my third hour and how it's different from my sixth hour. And teachers are such a great asset let them do what they do best and play to their strengths. Yeah. All right. Well, one of the other things I said to my wife as I was reading through this book is that um, if I was actually a, like a podcast mogul, which I am not, um, I see your amateur <laughs> triathlete and I raise you amateur triathlete and amateur podcaster. But um, I, this, this needs to be, this needs to be like a 12 part podcast series. You need to like get like, like the exactly right network or, or, you know, Vincent Racchiello's, uh, you know, uh, this week in virology group and make this like a 12 part series uh, and, and, and talk it out. And then you could have a couple of episodes that bang out, you know, mental health before the, the, before the pandemic and a couple episodes that are mental health because of the pandemic. And then like eight episodes that are all about this seal ambassador program. And, and you really lay it out and have the conversation and, and flush it out because I do feel like this one hour, while I'm very grateful for this and, you know, completely selfishly for me, I feel like I learned an immense amount, both from this book and also this conversation, which, has, has brought me, has made me think more about the things that I read and, and, and I will be thinking about it more as I re-listen to it and I edit it and I go through it. Um, but I do think that this is something that we could push out to a smaller group and a smaller group and then, and build out. And I think this is also a conversation that parents need to hear and students need to hear. And, you know, and, and so I'm hopeful that as this starts as a little ripple it goes into a broader groundswell and you can get more people who are who are checking in with you and and asking for you and not saying top down from the district we're going to roll out this seal program but that it can grow organically the way it really needs to so well that's that's very kind of you to say and and i think we 
we appreciate that a great deal. And, and we're, we're hopeful. I mean, it has been a great start. Um, we published the book in mid-June, and it's been very flattering and exciting to see the interest. But it's not about us. I mean, this, this topic <laughs> is way bigger than us and way bigger than our book. And um, we just felt a moral imperative to get some data that teachers could use to feel justified, to play to their strengths, and in a way, do less, but do it better. Um, and that's something we believe in. And for me, that's something that helps me go to bed at night thinking there's hope. <laughs> yeah. Hope is good. Hope is a good thing. Yeah. All well, right. Well, it's really good. And two brilliant co-authors is even better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So once again, I'm going to thank you three for joining me. Um, uh, this has been a great conversation. As I said, I learned so much and, uh, and I got so much out of this and, um, I hope my, uh, dozens of listeners, um, <laughs> will also enjoy it, but it will be that group of teachers who are the people who, who are the ones that you're looking for, uh, are, are the, I could tell you by name who most of them are, uh, but it's, you know, a couple hundred, couple hundred strong bio teachers who, who regularly check in with me. So, um, I'm, I'm glad to, I'm glad to be part of spreading that word. Well, yeah, right. and, you know, honestly, yeah. we would love, we would love to interact with your following, and you know, we not so creatively. Our website is, you know, afterthemask2020.com, and there's an easy way to contact us. And uh, shameless self promotion: we do PL, we do presentations, and we're here to support. Um, and or if it's just you have more questions, obviously we're happy to interact. But the point of the book is to make an impact. And Jessica and Rachel have the world's biggest hearts. I'd like to think I've got a big one too. And we're here to support teachers because anyone that's reaching out to us is dedicated. Um, and anything we can do to help them, no matter what corner of the world they're in, that's a win. That's a win for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Aaron, for having us on. Yes, thank you very much. Awesome. You're very welcome. I will definitely put in uh, links to the book, links to the website, um, all of that in my show notes that I post up for you guys. So uh, anybody can check out show notes. And that gives bring me into my credit. So um, you can subscribe to Life of the School on your podcast player of choice. Uh, you can get show notes at patreon.com slash lots. You can also contribute a buck or two a month and get early releases of episodes. I also post my show notes on Patreon along with on lifeoftheschool.org. Music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. Jake is one of my former students and the one of the ones I reached out to when I needed audio for a, for a podcast. I said, hey, Jake, can I steal one of your songs? Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. Uh, there is a Twitter account, but uh, Chris is not uh, keeping that up. So I'm not, uh, maybe I'll drop it in, but you have like no p tweets at all. Um, but you have an at After the Mask <laughs> Twitter. Which you Our might Instagram is a little more uh, popping. <laughs> all right. I will drop in the Instagram uh, for you guys as well. I joke because I, my team, Teacher personality is on Twitter because teacher teacher world on Twitter is definitely a thing. There is a teacher yeah. world on Instagram, yeah. but I only follow woodworkers on Instagram because that's how I partition my life. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining us and I will talk to everybody 